It's Lou Rosenfeld, and I'm really pleased to have in today's conversation Brett Helquist and Deb Gelman. Brett, you may not know if you're a UX person, but if you're a parent, you almost definitely know his work. He has, among other things, illustrated popular books like the Lemony Snicket series, as well as uh, written his own books and illustrated those too. Deb, you may know because she is the author of Design for Kids, which is debuting in July of 2014. That might be past tense by the time you hear this podcast. And I've been thinking about both of them and the interesting things that they do in terms of designing for kids, but they do it from very different perspectives. Uh, Brett is an illustrator, Deb as a user experience practitioner, and I wanted to get them together and compare notes a bit and see what what, uh, what was similar, what's different, and uh, I think uh, there's going to be some interesting uh, overlaps, but maybe some surprises as well. So with that, I'd like to welcome you both. I really wanted to delve a bit into what's common here, besides the fact that you're both doing work for kids, that you're both designing, in effect, for kids. And one of the things that um, seems certainly apparent is that you're both doing a form of storytelling and Brett, are you a storyteller as much as an illustrator, or are they one and yeah, the same? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, for the last 12 years or so, I've pretty much illustrated only books, and so, so my illustration work is almost always narrative, and uh, I do everything from middle-grade novels. You know, aren't always heavily illustrated, but the illustrations are used to kind of move the story along and to add some visual detail and help the readers kind of navigate the story. But the, and then uh, I also do picture books where the pictures are, you know, integral to the storytelling. The the book wouldn't really work without the pictures. So I, I uh, definitely think of myself as a storyteller. In cases like the, the Lemony Snicket books, do you feel that you're exclusively telling a story that, uh, that the authors come up with, or does your work retell or add to the story in any way from your perspective? Yeah, I do my best to uh, add what I can. And saying that, I, I have great respect for the authors. I, I read the books very carefully to make sure I get the details right. And when I say add to the story, I don't try to distract from the the storyline or the 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 general motion of the story i just when i say add it's kind of adding a little color adding a little life a little more uh depth so the world that the author is trying to create in words just becomes a little more vivid and alive to the to the reader that's that's what i aim for so the authors and the publishers uh, i imagine uh t- t- together to some degree pick you because they appreciate your form of visual storytelling. But do you ever get into situations where um, they feel like maybe you've gone a little too far and maybe taken too much ownership of the story? Because I'm going to ask Deb pretty much the same question in a minute, and in our field that, that can be a big issue in terms of how designers interpret stories for their clients. Yeah, that's never really happened. There there are occasions when I uh, notice a little visual detail that I think would uh, make an interesting picture that doesn't, and, and it, on an occasion or two, it didn't quite work with the, the story, and I've suggested the possibility of changing it. Just And these are just minor details. Might be a hair color or a costume detail or something like that. And But beyond that, and sometimes they've told me yes sometimes and sometimes no, and I just respect either answer. But other than that, I, 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 I've never really had that problem. Like I say, I read the text very carefully and 
try really hard to respect uh, the work that the author has put into it and the story they want to tell and just uh, like my main goal like I said was to add some color and some depth and just kind of flesh out the world a little bit not really make it my own per se right and in terms of guidelines are they giving you pretty tight requirements like we need an illustration here at this point in the the story or we want you know X number per chapter, but whatever you think, wherever it would work the best, or how does that work typically? Yeah, that's that's uh, talked about before we get begin the process, and uh, sometimes it's just a matter of how much money they want to spend on the project, you know. And I tell them what I can do for that price. So sometimes, if there's if it's more open, if 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 uh, they just want it fully illustrated, then we uh, I usually read the book and think of every possible image that I think would work with the story, and then we then I talk it over with. With the author and editor usually and we decide you know which which of my ideas are the strongest and which ones uh don't work very well and we kind of talk it out and then you have to also consider just uh the pacing so you don't get your illustrations all jumbled up in one corner of the book and then you know a hundred pages with nothing so we talk about that and try to even it out and just make it a good experience so most of those uh, details are decided together early on in the project okay so um yeah i like that you use that word experience because that's a good segue onto what deb does uh which is ensure a good user experience um and so why don't we turn it to deb uh do you like this term storyteller uh, as a way to explain what you do deb I do. I do. I think it's a a very apt description of what it is that we do as interaction designers, especially when we're designing for kids. And it's funny because there's this misconception out there that kids love things that are nonlinear. They love everything on a screen to move or do something and, and, and provide that immediate feedback. The truth of the matter is kids need some sort of narrative or some sort of structure to guide them through the experience. Um, and I've seen a lot of, of designers come uh, to the table with with really abstract ideas that aren't aren't pulled together in any sort of a story. And uh, when you do that, you run the risk of, of alienating the kids and having them go off and do something that is more structured because they don't really appreciate um, interactions that, that that feel more of, of, a, of a free for all. Um, so I think it's it's necessary to even if the initial idea isn't crafted the way a traditional story would be crafted, it's important to kind of, uh, to, to drive out that story from either the client or from the sponsor or whomever is approaching you to do the project because that's the only re- way the kids are going to really respond. They need to have a purpose, and that purpose needs to be uh, really driven, um, much like a story. So okay, so but. For different ages, their grasp of narrative or conversely maybe of more abstract uh, story uh, probably changes quite a bit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. For the younger kids, it can be as simple as, here's the cat. When you click on the cat, the cat says meow. And then when you click on the dog, the dog barks. And then at the end, they're together and the cat's meowing and the dog's barking. It, it doesn't have to have a real, it doesn't have to have a conflict and it doesn't have to have a protagonist or anything like that. Um, but it does have to have a general structure to lead the user, the young user through the story uh, that, that, that you're telling. For older audiences, it gets really interesting. We have to think about things like leveling up. We have to think about things like progression. We have to think about things like rewards. And all of those are really are, are key components to any type of story that you're telling in an interactive space. So when you're working with six to eight-year-olds, they need to feel as though what they're doing has a purpose and a progression as well, and that they're actually advancing as they go. 
And that storyline can be part of the advancement. And even if the, the app or the game or, or the interaction that they're engaging with um, is more educational or is more of a game, there still has to be something propelling them through um, to something on the other side. So even though they're in it for the journey, the journey has to be interesting and engaging and unfold as they go through the experience. So I'll turn it back to Brett. Do you, you mentioned a little bit about uh, doing different types of illustration for, for different types of books, and, and I assume for different age groups by extension. Do you feel like you, you handle the, the two to four year olds very differently than the eight to 10 year olds? Is there a big uh, a variation in age group from your perspective? Yeah, yeah, not so much uh, stylistically. I, I think the pictures I do are fairly similar. I use the same techniques, but uh, you know, a picture book for a young reader is uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the pictures are really driving the story, so they're sometimes very sequential. And uh, the, you know, the flow between pictures is very uh, fluid. You know, you go from one moment to the next moment right away, and you're, it's a, there can't be a lot of, usually not a lot of big time gaps between a picture and a picture book, you know, whereas uh, the, uh, the middle grade illustrated novels, I'm just illustrating select moments at, at different points of the story, but there's not a clear connection between uh, two pictures. You know, we, one picture is just a moment in the story, and then days and weeks can happen before the in the in the storyline before the next picture pops up. So I don't I don't illustrate that you know the flow of the story from moment to moment. Uh, where the picture book, it, it really is. It's it's uh, a lot like a. It's very visual, and it's in some ways. A lot like a, a cartoon, almost a storyboard of a simple cartoon. Sometimes, where you're, uh, you know, each the one picture happens, and then a second later, the next picture is happening. There's not usually not a lot of time between between images. So, Brett, it sounds like then uh, it's the the variation for age groups is less about the actual illustrations, more about the the flow or, or cadence, and and how much the the reader. Can handle um, kind of carrying the story themselves to some degree in terms yeah, of how they yeah. read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So you mentioned storyboards, and I'm wondering if that's your main tool for knowing how well your work succeeds. Is that how you evaluate, in effect, what you design? And are there other ways, or other tools that uh, you use to to find out if your work is is actually succeeding? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I like to every chance I get, I read my work to uh, kids at schools and bookstore events and things, and and uh, read them to my own kids also. And you know, I I feel like I've succeeded if they understand the story, if they uh, laugh at the parts that I was intending to be funny. Uh, you know, if they kind of just if they've understood the story without me explaining it, if I can just read it to them and show them the pictures and. And they get the story. But can you do that before you have a finished product, like with a, a storyboard or, or some sort of prototype? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, like I say, I when I when I do meet school children, if I'm working on a project, I'll usually read them one of my published books, and then if I've got another book that's far enough along, I will show them some of that and just you know, part of it's to show them that they they enjoy learning the process of what I'm doing. But I also you take advantage of them and just read a little bit of it to them and uh, see see if they're understanding the story, if they're responding to it in the way that I hope they will. And I do that with my own children, too. Sometimes with my kids, I just show them a sketch of a picture I'm working on, 
and just ask them to um, tell me what they're seeing. And if, if they're missing the important detail, I know I've got some work to do. So I just uh, usually, uh, you know, there's, uh, we don't, I don't do any formal testing. It's just more informal things like that with friends and family and school children when I get a chance to. Okay. And what about you, Deb? I mean, obviously, in your book, you cover quite a bit around uh, different design research methods. Um, what do you think works best with kids? And does it vary quite a bit from age range to age range? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think it, it, it's really important to get that, that, that gut read at the beginning of a project. So even before you have any type of interactions designed or any even type of visual imagery, it can be as easy as cutting pictures out of a magazine or getting a bunch of stuffed animals and putting them in a room and setting the, the stage so that the beginnings of the narrative are there and then just observing the kids, what they do with what you've shown them, how are they taking the story to the next level, give them the framework and then watch them unfold it. And that will allow you to see if you're going in the right direction or if they're thinking about something completely different. And it's usually a combination. They usually they usually start out with you and then they kind of take it down, you know, to crazy town, um, which is great. And what you can do is then you can harness that information, what you've what you've learned from observing them and then put that into more of a formal digitized experience that they then can play. And you know that your design is working well if the kids are engaged, if they're not talking a lot, if they're absorbed in what they're doing. And you know that it's not working when kids, especially kids um, over the age of eight, say things like, oh, you know, this, this, this app would be great for my baby sister or, um, or you know, I, I think this would be great for a younger kid. Or they may even just come right out and tell you that oh, this is pretty lame. I don't think I would ever use that. Lame is definitely not a word that you want to hear when you're uh, working on an app for kids. Uh, that means you have to go back to the drawing board. Um, or if you ask them and they say, "Oh yeah, this, you know, I, I really like what this is, what this is doing." Uh, whatever, it's fine. That's also not good. So look for those visual cues. Look for those verbal cues, uh, and and try to involve kids in the process as early and as often as you can, because they w- will be very tuned into those nuances and they'll tell you, you'll be able to tell immediately what's working and what's not. As you're describing this, I'm almost envisioning uh, the design research that you do with kids is almost being a, a form of play in and of itself. I can almost envision uh, you running body storming sessions with kids. Is it is it that chaotic and fun or it, does it have to kind of be like traditional research? Yeah, it actually depends on the age group. So you, with younger kids, it has to be chaotic uh, and fun. Uh, you have to work with younger kids one-on-one, however, just because they tend to get very reserved. They don't engage with other kids. So when you're alone with a child and, and some toys and some ideas, you talk, uh, get them started thinking about the stuff that you're trying to, to do and watch what they do. And there, your eyes will be opened <laughs> a million times over when you see the direction these kids take. And obviously, like any type of research, you're not going to take exactly what the, the, the subject says or does and use that as the basis of your design, but it absolutely can help you inform the direction. Uh, we also, I like to do a lot of um, participatory design sessions, and that's where it gets super chaotic, especially when you're working with six to eight-year-olds, you bring in a whole bunch of supplies and you let them create their own experience within the constraints that you give them. And uh, the what you end up with is just unbelievable. Um, and it is a lot like body storming. It's, it's very engaging. Mm-hmm. It's very... Uh, 
in, in, involved and, and participatory and messy and, and you, you, you really see how these kids conceptualize and, and think about the interactions they have on a daily basis, not just with technology but with the people around them. And it helps you make those experiences feel a little bit more personal, a little bit more engaging, um, a little bit more first person, if you will. So, so doing that kind of research, get inside the minds of these kids and understand exactly what it is that they're looking for and what they hope to get from the experience that you're designing. And uh, you know, just thinking about doing design research for you both, um, I would imagine that parents or some sort of guardian who makes a, ultimately a purchasing decision is an important audience. Uh, do you involve them somehow as you're trying to figure out what to design? Yeah, you know, parents are a really important uh, part of the research process because what kids like and what parents like are frequently very different. In my book, I talk about something called the PTR, which is the parental threshold for the revolting. I was doing a workshop one couple years ago, and one of the participants got up and said, my kids love games with mucus and diarrhea and oh, horrible things. And I've seen these, these games, and they're, they're really out of control. Um, so you have to make sure whatever it is you're designing, a parent will be amenable to purchasing it and letting their child play with it. There's a game um, called Why We Poo, and it's, it's just ridiculous. And I, as a parent, <laughs> I'm not too excited. I would not be excited to have my five-year-old play with it. She would absolutely love it. She would think it was the funniest thing that she's ever seen. Unfortunately, she will not have the opportunity because I will not put it on my iPhone and I will not let her play with it. So to gauge that, you have to get parents involved early on. And of course, it's not as simple as just saying, hey, how would you feel about this concept? It's what crosses the line for you in terms of the gross factor. What what do you feel is too much? What what do you feel is acceptable? What does your kid like? Why do you think they like that? And getting them to really respond on that level so that you don't get to a point where it's just so distasteful to them that they won't that well, they won't even purchase it. Brett, uh, as both an illustrator who has to think about the parental buyer in many cases, as well as a parent, do you um, find yourself dancing on that line that, that Deb was just mentioning, and yeah. sometimes crossing it? Yeah, I well, I hope I haven't crossed it. I, I probably have, but uh, but I I don't really do anything formally with it. I, I don't do any research really, but uh, I, it's on my mind all the time. It's, you know, parents are the ones that buy the books, especially with the picture books. If I'm writing it myself, I just try hard to think of the parent. I spend a lot of time reading it aloud to myself just to see if it's easy to read and has a nice rhythm to it. You know, something that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure every parent's had a had a book that their child loves that they just find hard to read out loud to them. It's just uh, you know whether the language is clumsy or too many words or just dull. Or so I, I think about it a lot. With the uh, middle grade, you know, I think those that age of kids they have a lot more say in what they which books they end up with. But I still try to, especially on the cover, just create something that will really be engaging and uh, grab an adult's attention, hopefully get them to pick up the book and consider it for their child. I'm envisioning you right now in uh, uh, sneaking around the bookstore here in our neighborhood in Park Slope and, and watching parents as they thumb through the, the section of books that you've had something to do with. Uh, let's, let's kind of wrap it up with something of a, a trick question. How would you each 
help the other. If Brett, if you had Deb uh, with all her skills in, in uh, design research in your employ, uh, what would be really helpful for uh, you to have her do on your behalf? And, and Deb, the, the same question for you. If, if you had a world-class illustrator like Brett that uh, you could work with in some way, what, what would he do for you? You want me to go first, or either one who's willing and uh, brave uh, enough. <laughs> if I, I, I think I understand. You know, I have a lot of experience in the book world, obviously, and and I'm really intrigued by the opportunities that the new digital world have presented. And you know, I know there's a lot of concern about books and and how they'll fare. And I, I, I you know, I hope that uh, we'll always have books, but I can see that. Uh, Technology we have opens a lot of doors and can kind of enhance the storytelling, but I I just don't know how to begin thinking about it. So if I had if I had Deb for a day or a week, it would just be to you know open my mind on you know if you've got a good book and a good story in a traditional sense, you know how do you where do you where do you take that to the next you know to get it into that digital world and can, not to replace the story but just to expand upon it. And, open some doors there or storytelling hopefully i think you're thinking about it in the right way so there are so many many apps out there that are books that are basically just read-along books right and there's something beautiful about the book in its existing form that does not necessarily need to be technologically remediated right there's there there's something magical about uh the experience that an individual has with a paper book and i don't think you can replicate that online or digitally or in an app or on a device but what i would tell you is if you wanted to move into the digital realm think about some of the stories you've written or that you will write that have think about ways to bring a child into those stories in a more interactive way um, or think about a story that you've written that has a strong interactive component, um, almost like a choose-your-own-adventure story. There's a linear flow to it, but the child can in- involve uh, himself or herself in the in the story itself, whether that's being part of the of the story as it unfolds, or engaging with the characters in an interesting way, or um, making the characters do something that they might not do ordinarily. Thinking about how to to get that level of 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 um, engagement where the child is actually the storyteller. The story will already be there. The child will actually lead him or herself through the story, but make them feel as though they're the ones unfolding the story as they go. Um, And it doesn't work for every story and it doesn't work for every book, but thinking about ways to make those characters come alive and really drive the story from the child's perspective. Again, you know, people think about kids, how kids like things to be nonlinear, like we talked about earlier. You know, if kids really like things to be nonlinear, they'd read a book from the middle out, right? They wouldn't follow the story. So there, there really does need to be that level of structure. And I think having the story selected that, that does pull the child in in an, in an interesting way is a really um, interesting, engaging way to think about storytelling in this digital world that we live in. Well, uh, we, we've come back to a theme that we started with, namely storytelling, and I, I think it's a good place to end. Uh, I want to thank both of you, uh, expert storytellers, Tellers for Kids, Brett Helquist and Deb Gilman uh, for joining us today. That was just a, a, a ton of fun. And uh, thanks for joining us again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was a blast. It really was.